The medical professional literature and the popular media is filled with fixes for the obesity epidemic. But the answers still evade us. Is there an alternative strategy that awaits us? I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm your host today on ReachMD. And with me to discuss this issue is Sarah Joy Marsh. She has a master in counseling and is an active yoga instructor. And she's a recent author of the book, Hunger, Hope, and Healing, a yoga approach to reclaiming your relationship to your body and food. Thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. What led you to write this book? Well, the the book originates with my own personal story, being an adolescent and an early 20-something, struggling with my issues with food and body image, really struggling with figuring out how to feed myself without it becoming an out-of-control behavior or a chronic restricting behavior. And while I was struggling with those behaviors, I also felt profoundly anxious, depressed, isolated, and helpless until I discovered at the top of a mountain on a backpacking trip, I discovered the experience of stretching and breathing and alleviating the burden I had been carrying mentally and physically. It turns out that what I was doing at the top of that mountain hike is now called yoga and was at the time called yoga, but was relatively unknown. This was back in the late 80s, early 90s. So that initiated my own journey into the work that I now do and have been doing for the last 20 years with women. The book was an invitation one that I accepted gladly and with honor so that I could help other women and men who are struggling, whom I would not be able to meet in person, but they could pick up a book and feel my support on every page that they're reading. Why the name Hunger, Hope, and Healing? Well, hunger is something that humans will experience. We experience it ubiquitously, and often we have hungers that aren't just for food, and yet we substitute food to try to satisfy the other hungers, like a hunger for companionship or a hunger for creativity or spontaneity or adventure can turn into food to try to satiate those hungers, which inevitably doesn't work and actually causes more despair and suffering than it does healing. So what I've experienced with women or men who've been struggling for a long time with these issues is that they have essentially lost hope in their ability to make a change. And I want to put into the book the actual steps you can take to create hope again in your life. When I outline that for people, I start by saying, hey, look, I know you're in pain. I was also in pain. And there's something you can actually do about it to revive your sense of hope in yourself and then take action towards real healing, not just symptom abatement and not just trying to force yourself to have different thoughts about food or your body, but actual healing where your life expands beyond what you could have imagined and also becomes more sageable, more deeply contented. I take yoga on a regular basis, practicing internist. Our audience are primarily physicians. How can this book be used by the physicians, either personally, as I might use it, because I already kind of am connected to the area of yoga, but how can they use it in their patients in general? Well, there's several uses a physician could make, and I'm so glad to hear that you practice yoga. I love that. And, and you could use the book whether you have a disordered eating pattern or a dysregulated relationship to your body. You could use it to pick up the breathing practices that navigate self-soothing or upregulate your nervous system to be more clear. You can also use the yoga poses that are in the book. There are photographs and instructions there, and you can use them for stress management or 
just to make the body feel a little better and less uncomfortable. The physicians using the book for patients or clients can further look at the book to help them have a fresh conversation with someone whose behavior is steeped in self-harm. I outline in the book how to have a different conversation with yourself and therefore a physician with a patient, a different conversation about shame and about anxiety and the experience of self-harm that we've been using to try to navigate shame and anxiety. Because those navigations can look really painful from the outside, it's more likely that we're judging the patient or the client, even if we don't say it out loud. And so I, I recommend to practitioners everywhere that we really look at a completely non-judgmental stance, a more compassionate relationship to the student and the client, and help them see that by changing things like their breathing, their body posture, their stress management system, they could also have a different conversation with themselves. So you're asking patients to delve into self-knowledge and begin to have new behavior, to be curious about their hunger and the anger that may be related to their failure, if we use that word loosely, and not being able to deal with their hunger. Yeah, and I actually think anger is a suitable word because part of what's happened is we are meant to learn how to feed ourselves in early life and to do it according to like the natural experience of the body. But once we start picking up chronic dieting patterns, restricting, binging, eating foods that aren't great for the nervous system, we actually start betraying the body's natural intelligence. And then that can go so far awry that we have this sudden shock of recognition like, I actually don't know how to feed myself. And if you were a small child, two or three or five years old, and you realized you couldn't feed yourself, your sense of agency would be profoundly upset, and you would probably feel frustration. Now, go decades further when you're an adult. I think it does produce some anger and frustration, and anger is an appropriate response to what's happened, but not a useful way to relate to ourselves. So we extend compassion towards that frustration, start looking at softening the story we're telling about ourselves, and come back to the possibility of nurturing the body, not punishing it. And that's a key concept in my book. It's called self-nurturing discipline or self-nurturing kindness. How do we nurture the best possible systems for the body to heal? I'm, I'm struck by the fact that my patients bought every new book on nutrition. They brought these books in regularly, asked me to read them. They knew more about nutrition than I did. But we never really discussed what you're just asking them to discuss, to meet the kind of internal issues. And will they do it, and will they sustain it? Well, my experience is that when people start this particular path that I outline in my book, it's more kind as a path overall, and they're more willing to stick with it. Like a person who might decide on a new diet, but they're deciding on that diet with an attitude of self-hatred. I hope that falls apart because self-hatred isn't a great way to motivate yourself. In fact, it, it's inevitably going to reinforce shame, not help to heal from that. So when, when women start this journey with me and they realize one of the first steps is radical acceptance, compassion, self-tenderness, there's a feeling of relief that comes over them, 
and therefore a willingness to try something different. If you're just joining us, I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and we're discussing with Sarah Joy Marsh her recent book, Hunger, Hope, and Healing, a yoga approach to reclaiming your relationships to your body and food. Thank you again. In my years of practice, and I don't think I was unique, it was rare that a patient discussed what they had identified as an eating disorder, whether it was bulimia or anorexia. They could have been my patient for 20 years, and although they were often given opportunities to discuss it, they never brought it up. This is a question of shame, because it certainly seems that here they had somebody that they could trust, and yet this was an area almost like domestic violence, although it isn't the same, but that they were ashamed and didn't want to discuss it with their physician. Would this book help? I think that's very accurate, right, because the shame is so isolating and so debilitating that the feeling of talking with your physician about it can be overwhelming. I have had women come seek me out who have been bulimic or anorexic or been binge purging for 20 or 30 years and have never told anybody. I'm the first person they're talking to about it, and they take an enormous risk to come see me and be willing to talk about it and to start the practice of yoga simultaneously. So one of the ways that physicians could help sort of tease out the possible conversation about a person's eating disorder is to understand how shame works, why shame arises, how we internalize it, and what we can do as providers or practitioners to lessen the likelihood of someone feeling shame in our company. Even if we're not intending for that to happen, a person who has very deeply internalized shame has very deeply internalized shame. And for them to be willing to start talking about it, we may have to ask different questions. Generally, I recommend we're not asking yes or no questions questions that might entice more response from the student or the client or the patient. An open-ended question. Yeah, an open-ended question. And, and what would be an example of that? For example, somebody comes and maybe you're working with them on uh, body weight management to help them with diabetes or basic blood sugar or maybe even chronic pain. And a question you might ask is, and so tell me more, what is your relationship with food like? Listen to the response pick up the part that, that has a little rise in energy and ask for more information about that. Keeping the space between the two of you really open and non-judgmental. We might even ask somebody, and what was your parents' relationship to food? To find out what a family system relationship was like and how that might have trickled down into the person you're working with. And I strongly recommend that we keep reinforcing the choices a person has made along the way, skillful or unskillful, actually made sense at the time, given whatever conditioning they had, whatever resources they had, and whatever life skills they had or didn't have. The choices they made made sense. Now here's a chance to develop new life skills, a new relationship to your body and food. But we don't want to make someone feel intrinsically wrong bad or more ashamed for what they have been doing. And that's a, a key point in my book also. Like, how are you going to change your relationship for forgiveness of the past behaviors and curiosity about present behaviors and openness 
to new behaviors that you can develop. That seems like a good segue into what you described in your book, fight, flight, freeze, and submit. Could you expound on that? Well, what's happening for any one of us, whether we have issues with food or body image or not, is we're all programmed with a really primal instinct. Your brain has this programming to make sure that you are preserved, that you survive, that you're not experiencing sudden death. Because of that programming, our nervous system can decide to go into a fight response, a flight response, fight off a predator, flee or run away from a predator. We also have a freeze instinct, much like the deer in headlights where we get stunned in the face of a threat. And we have a submit or collapse instinct, which is sometimes called faint or dorsal vagal response. So those four options, fight, flight, freeze, and submit, they exist whether we're experiencing a real threat or a perceived threat. Now, once a person's internalized a really strong shame voice, that voice is a source of threat in an ongoing way. So their fight, flight, freeze, submit, biochemistry, and neurology is activated all the time, which changes baseline blood sugar, heart rate, respiration rate. It, it really reorganizes brain chemistry towards chronic stress and apprehension. Add to that that a person then chooses some foods are threatening, they're called bad foods, and some foods are okay, they're called good foods. And now you're having an argument with food as a threat. And that becomes a conversation that's hard to unwind. So I teach people how to shift out of fight, flight, freeze, submit as a chronic stance on life and turn to physiology through diaphragmatic breathing that reworks your brain, mind, body, and heart to experience more ease, equanimity, courage, possibility, inspiration. And that's where I can get traction with women or men wanting to move towards recovery. Once I have their nervous system on board in a more balanced way, we can take the next step in the conversation. You also talk about six stations of the mind, and I would like you to expound on that too, because I thought that was really a very interesting way to approach the problems. Yeah, that's great, because if you look at your mind at any one time in the course of the day, if I look at mine, and let's say we're relatively accomplished at managing our lives, but then also look at the mind state of someone who's been anxious or depressed, and they've cultivated that through usually pretty good reasons. Each of us is navigating somewhere the six stations of past or future, self and other, likes and dislikes. And the mind is ricocheting back and forth between those things more rapidly when we're anxious, more habitually and more deeply entrenched when we feel depressed, and maybe more lightheartedly when we feel capable and resilient. But those six stations are in there to help us navigate that sense of perceived threat and or navigate how we're going to grow our lives into greater happiness and contentment. But we're all doing it all the time. And in fact, all the spiritual traditions in the world that I've studied, they say the, the causes of suffering include likes and dislikes, aversion and desire, grasping and aversion. And that's part of the two stations of the mind. Then we have self and other. Like, I'm chronically worried about my self-image or where I fit in the world, and I might perceive others as either companions or threats or people to feel competitive with or people for whom I feel like they don't like me and now I've got this thought going. 
And then your biochemistry goes back to fight, flight, freeze, or submit. What am I going to do about these threats? I'm going to react unless I've learned to pay attention and see my mind pattern is doing its mind pattern thing, and I can intervene wisely and compassionately. In closing, before we leave, and I know you don't discuss this in your book, maybe it's my own personal prejudice that allows me to ask the question, you know, considering the high mortality rate and the young age of patients who have eating disorders, it appears to me that this group of diseases does not get attention, shall we say, in the medical community. And of course, you may have no real feelings about this. But I wonder if doctors as a group shy away from asking the questions that you suggested that would bring up this whole conversation? Well, it's been my experience working with students slash clients that they haven't found places to have the conversation openly and that I think our medical culture, when we once we diagnose a condition as a mental illness, we might make it harder for someone to actively talk about or seek out help. I know in my own case, when I was young and struggling, I called someone for help in my community, and they felt as helpless as I did and sent me to the emergency room. And at the ER, I was told to come back the next day to meet with a social worker. When I met that social worker, she seemed frightened of me. Now, this is 25 years ago, and I know cultures don't change that rapidly, but if the doctor or physician or therapist either finds the patient frightening overwhelmingly stubborn, uh, profoundly anxious, or if they feel disgust about this person's behavior, that's not going to be an easy way to start a healing conversation from. I really want to thank you for that because I think you're touching a tender nerve with our audience, and I'd like to touch that nerve. I think with a, a breath, yoga can certainly quiet anxiety. I have found that. It can certainly open you to self-respect, and it can shift you from fear to new opportunities. I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, you're so welcome. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for joining us. This is Dr. Maurice Pickard. If you've missed any of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com to download this podcast and many others in this series. Thanks again.